This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Age discrimination looks different because of the Internet. An investigation by ProPublica and The New York Times found that big employers, including Amazon, Target, and Facebook, are placing recruitment ads on Facebook limited to young people. There is a law to protect against practices like that, a law that passed 50 years ago now. And as we'll hear in a bit, it has its limitations. First, though, let's meet Denver filmmaker and writer Nancy Fingerhood, who started a social media campaign to draw attention to age discrimination. Also, Scott Crowshore. He's a 49-year-old technology consultant in Denver. Welcome to the program. Thank you for having us. Scott, as a tech consultant, you are used to job turnover for sure, but... Recently, a job ended, and you went out to look for another one. What was different this time? Well, the, the number of resumes that I ended up sending out to get this next job, it was um, maddening, quite frankly. Always knew that in a consulting experience, you have to be able to be good at interviewing and good at finding your next opportunity, and it never scared me. It was always something that I, I was drawn to, which has made me successful as a consultant. How many resumes do you think you sent out? I know it was over 100. I, I think it was about 112, quite frankly. Okay, and that's more than usual? Uh about five times more, yeah. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. So you changed something about your resume as an experiment, I understand. Yes, I did. I took 13 years of experience off of my resume, and it helped. It did. The ironic part is is that the job I ended up getting was a backfill for a position that I'd submitted four months earlier that was given to somebody younger who bailed on them. So it was, it was rather interesting that, how that ultimately worked out. So when you took 13 years off of your resume, you started to get nibbles. Yeah. I saw the interview rate go up. I think something's going on in the HR departments where when they see 23 years experience and a graduation date back in the 90s, for some reason, it just kind of falls to the side. Well, Nancy, you're a filmmaker and writer. And uh, what's been your experience with age discrimination? Well, my husband and I uh, were looking for full-time jobs. And we also noticed that we weren't getting interviews, even though we did feel that we were qualified for the positions. We thought our resumes looked good. And we started talking about it and we're wondering, what's going on here? And the thought of age discrimination did come up. And I said, well, let's try to take dates, uh, you know, graduation dates off of our resume. Um, You know, maybe that will help. Ultimately, I did get a part-time job. And he did get a full-time job, but it was pretty distressing to think, you know, we're in our 40s and this is happening and we're considering taking graduation dates off of our resumes. When you did that, do you think it made a difference or was that just a suspicion you had? You can't really prove it. It's really hard to prove. It was just a suspicion, of course, but, you know, we just felt it in our gut. You started a social media campaign around age discrimination uh, of which Scott was actually a part. Uh, Scott, I'm curious, Like, were you, did this make you angry? Did it make you frustrated? Uh, frustration, anger, obviously, but just frustration because you spend a lot of years devoting working, um, helping bring projects in on time and under budget, uh, learning new technologies, all sorts of things, and then you don't have an opportunity to um, put that to work. So you were doing what you thought were all the right things, keeping up with the latest technology, absolutely. the latest lingo. Oh, absolutely! It's uh-huh. part of the it's part of the job description. You really do. You need to maintain. You need to always be learning. Um, and so we spend a lot of time outside of the normal work hours keeping up on those technologies. Nancy, I understand there was a quote you ran across that really gave you the the gumption to take on this project. 
Yes, I was on uh, the social media site LinkedIn, and I saw a quote from an author named Bridget Hyacinth. And part of it is, ageism in the workplace is very real. I see uproars over every other ism, sexism, racism, etc. But everyone turns a blind eye to ageism. It's being swept under the carpet. And so what other stories have you heard in the social media campaign? We posted a Craigslist ad uh, looking for people who face age discrimination. Uh, We wanted to take their photographs and we wanted to make a visual statement with their picture and on a whiteboard, a sentence or two of them saying what they experienced. You posted some of these responses to Mm -hmm. your website. I, too, am qualified is is the campaign. Yes. What was written on these whiteboards? I'm not overqualified. I'm experienced. Isn't that a good thing? My practical knowledge is better than someone fresh out of college. Another one is, three decades of public school teaching will make me an asset, not a risk or liability. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we are talking about age discrimination 50 years after a key law was passed to protect workers from age discrimination. Joining us now is Patricia McMahon. She is here from the Equal Employment Opportunity Office in Denver. And uh, Patricia, welcome to the program. Hi. So it has been 50 years since the Age Discrimination in Employment Act passed. And it's interesting that it protects workers 40 and older. That seems so young now. It does seem young now. It didn't seem young in 1967. What was its main purpose? Well, it protects workers from uh, discrimination in apprenticeship programs, hiring, firing, uh, harassment. We talk about sexual harassment. Well, it's also illegal to engage in age discrimination comments and to harass a worker into retiring, for example. What are ways that employers try to screen out older workers without saying they're doing so. So the way employers can weed out older workers uh, on online applications, for example, is that they'll have the the drop-down box where it will say date of birth. And uh, the date of birth will only go to, say, 1980. And You've seen that? Yeah. Oh, my God. That, I, and, that and wouldn't it, even cover me. Right. And and you can't go past that box. So you can't continue the application process. Or if I have like graduation date, of uh, say 1996, and you can't go past the um, the application box. Hmm. And that's that's a way that it literally it screens out applicants. The the employers will say, oh, well, it's a glitch in our computer. You know, if they would have called, if they would have tried to, you know, contact us, you have to give them the opportunity to correct it. Uh, unlike the Americans with Disabilities Act, where it actually writes in that there are certain things that are illegal, it's not illegal, but it is questionable, especially when nobody who's over the age of 40 or a certain age group can get hired, it becomes questionable and it can be brought in later for evidence to show that there was a bias. Okay. So th- that could be a case you pursue with the EEOC. It would be a case we would pursue with the EEOC. Got it. And you've also seen examples of employers only considering like the last X years of experience. Tell me about that. When an employer has a maximum amount of experience that they will consider, that is bothersome to us because we understand minimum amounts of experience. If if an employer says five years minimum amount of computer experience will be considered, we get that. But when it says maximum amount, 10 years maximum amount of experience will be considered. We'll only consider maybe the last seven or 10 years of your, why? Of your resume. Yeah. The question comes up, why would, that, why would that matter to you? Well, one reason it might matter 
matter. And Scott, I'd be interested in your answer to this, Nancy, as well. You're cheaper if you have less experience. Isn't, isn't that part of the deal here? Yeah, oft, sometimes. But in, in my field, um, there's a, a stated rate. There is a rate that they put out there that you negotiate with the recruiter. The recruiter knows what the dollars are. So the company that's hiring is already locked into a certain rate. It's just the, the other companies that come in and get their little piece off of it. Interesting. Okay, so, so that's they, locked in whether you're 30 or 60. Right. Correct, yes. Okay. What, what would yeah. you say from your, your experience, Nancy? I see, you know, there are ads uh, on Indeed and Craigslist, different places, and they state what the salary is. So you know going in what the pay is. Well, now, if these practices aren't outright bad, and in this law, what good is it? You have the ability to file a, a complaint. You can't ban practices, but you can investigate them. And so that is what the law is there to allow you to do. Got it. Um, file that complaint with the EEOC. Right. So what you can do is when you believe, like Scott did, he, he believed that he was being discriminated against, he had the ability to file a complaint and have that investigated. And if he prevailed, then he had remedies available to him. Now, was one act illegal? I don't know. But would all the acts put together, could that have been discrimination? Maybe, possibly. Last year, Colorado had 515 age discrimination cases filed at the EEOC. That's actually down substantially from 659 in 2009. Meanwhile, 64% of older workers say they've seen or experienced age discrimination, and the number is even higher for older women. It sounds like a lot of people don't file. A lot of people don't file. Why do you think that is? Well, it's a hassle, and a lot of people want to move on. Um, People get jobs. It's a personal choice. Filing is a commitment. Do you have to have an attorney to do it? No, you don't. Uh, Actually, everything you do with EEOC is free. Uh, we do the investigation for free. We, If we decide to litigate on your behalf, it's free. Uh, it's completely covered by the taxpayers. Nancy, what would you add here? Um, regarding the Age Discrimination and Employment Act, that there's a different standard for proving your case with this uh, based on a 2009 Supreme Court case. So, for example, in a race discrimination case, um, you have to show that race is a motivating factor in the employer's decision. Um, But the ADEA does not have that type of language. So there's a but-for clause. So it has to be the prime factor. And so that makes it harder because you have a different burden of proof. Did you meet people who filed a claim? Um, I haven't, but I did speak to an attorney. Um, She said that a lot of cases settle in secret and that corporate America apologizes through dollars basically. And so you don't have a lot of cases going to trial because they settle privately. When cases are brought to the EEOC, is it most often that they have experienced age discrimination from a current employer or is it that they're job seekers? Pretty much equal. The job seekers, those are the ones who have no idea why they didn't get the job, but they're they're pretty sure it's because of their age. And then we have the people that are currently employed and they feel that they are experiencing harassment and they're on the verge of probably losing their job. And that's why they're coming in and filing an age discrimination charge. Older workers are pretty, they're not thinking about age. When, when you're a woman you're aware that you're a woman in business. When you are a minority, you're aware that you're a minority in business. 
But in age discrimination, when you're when you're an older worker, it's just not something that you think about. Then when you do, it's because something has happened to make you aware of it. You're nodding your head yes there. Yeah, because I think a lot of people feel confused at first. They're like, is this really happening? Is this because of my age? Could it be? So one of the reasons my husband and I started the campaign is because we want people to know it is real. It's not all in your head. You're not going crazy. This is really happening. And we want them to feel like they're not alone in this. What are some of the things employers have told older workers uh, that you've heard, uh, Patricia? You know, older workers usually get told things like they're not quick enough, they're, they're, they're too slow, their attitudes are poor. The one that, that starts to get to them is when they start getting asked about, when are you going to retire? And are any one of those reasons to trigger an investigation, or it's really the collection of, of it, incidents? It's the totality of the circumstances. Oh. It's when you start noticing that suddenly you're not getting promoted, you're not getting trained, you're not, you're being ignored. You're, you're, it's the invisible worker syndrome. So, Scott, I wonder if any of that sounds familiar, especially in the tech world, where I feel like there's, yeah, there's such an emphasis really on newness, on youth, maybe. Yeah, well, uh, Zuckerberg uh, from Facebook came out and said that, you know, the younger workers are better. Uh, That was a comment, not a direct quote, but something along those lines. I mean, it's a general prevailing attitude out there um, that the the older workers can't put the time in, don't have the knowledge, aren't up to date on the skill sets. I can't tell you how many people I know that have been facing this thing. In fact, uh, my solution I started my own consulting firm. Uh, I found that it takes it a little bit away from the person directly and looks more at what is able to be delivered in a skill set and and what you can specialize in and deliver. And uh, that's been my way around it. Nancy, what do you hope to accomplish with this I, too, am qualified campaign? What what do you want employers to know? I guess it's twofold. One is for the, the older workers to know that they're not alone, like I said, and and I guess we would hope to put corporations on notice and to know we know what's going on. Uh, there's a writer and uh, activist, Ashton Applewhite, and she has a great quote, ageism is a prejudice that pits us against our future selves. Think about that <laughs> as a young person. Thanks to all of you for being with us. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Patricia McMahon is with the EEOC in Colorado. Scott Crowshore is a technology consultant in Denver. And he's part of I Too Am Qualified, a social media campaign created by Nancy Fingerhood to bring attention to age discrimination. You can find a link at CPR.org. The Age Discrimination in Employment Act just marked its 50th anniversary. Vancouver on Canada's west coast has always been a draw for tourists, but now it's seeing visitors, namely elected officials from around the world, for its unique approach to illegal drug use. Listen to this snippet from a Canadian podcast. Over the past couple of decades, the city has become a kind of laboratory for drug research. There are needle exchanges and mobile overdose clinics, supervised injection sites. There's even a pilot program for prescription heroin. 
Well, this month, officials from Denver will visit Vancouver to learn more about that city's opioid problem and its unusual approach to tackling it. Jeff Turner is host of the podcast On Drugs from the CBC, the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation. He's with us from Vancouver. And uh, Happy New Year to you, Jeff. Same to you, Ryan. I want to dive into some of the ideas that we heard about in, in that snippet. But explain uh, first what a supervised injection site is. This is something that Denver's strongly considering, but the law here would have to change to allow for it. Yeah, it, it, it probably sounds a, a little more dramatic than it actually is in real life. But if you could sort of picture, uh, or, uh, if, you, if you went to university, if you remember the study carols in the library, the little desks with the sort of sidewalls yeah, yeah. along them. Imagine those, except they're made out of stainless steel and they have a mirror on the front wall of it. And imagine those in a semicircle, 12 or 13 of them. And in each one of those uh, carols is somebody with the implements they need to inject uh, drugs, typically heroin or other opioids or even uh, methamphetamine or cocaine. And in the room are nurses and other health health folks to make sure that people are safe or safer in that situation than they might be out on the street where they where they would otherwise be doing the drugs. The idea there is to reduce, presumably, the number of overdoses with an acknowledgement that there are some people who, who simply aren't going to kick the habit and uh, better to have them injecting under safe conditions than, than as you say, on the streets. Right. And it's uh, the overdose is a, is a big factor. And I should point out that uh, since two, 2003, when Inside opened, uh, there hasn't been a single overdose death at the site. So on that level, it certainly it seems to be effective. But the other thing is they know from experience that often uh, opioid users will do really unsafe things, as, as awful as using puddle water to, to mix the drugs and inject. Um, they're in a dangerous uh, situation because they're alone, for example, but also it puts them in touch with people who might be their first avenue to help. There are nurses there. There's what they call a chill room where there are peer counselors, many of whom are other drug users or former drug users. So it's kind of an opportunity for people who may be off the grid, off the radar, out in the margins to have some sort of connection with the health system and maybe an opportunity to get on a path to recovery or at least if they're going to continue using to be in a safer environment when they're doing it. There seems to be bipartisan support for having a supervised injection site in Metro Denver, uh, but there are some who, who fear that it would encourage drug use. Was that a controversial thing to start up in Vancouver? Yeah, I think on some level, but at the time that it emerged, um, the context you'd have to understand is Vancouver went through a, a serious overdose epidemic in the 1990s. And that was also coupled with an explosion of HIV and hepatitis C in, the, in Vancouver's downtown east side neighborhood, which is kind of uh, notoriously racked with problems around addiction, mm. uh, addiction of all sorts and poverty. And coupled with the fact that there was a... A, a serial killer on the loose, Robert Picton, uh, preying on women, many of whom were themselves uh, struggling with substance addiction and selling their bodies on the street. There came to be this recognition in Vancouver that whatever we were doing up to that point didn't seem to be working. And 
there just there came a moment where people all across the political spectrum said seem to agree that whatever we'd been doing up to this point, it's not working. What can we do differently? Yeah. And I think there was probably some of what you're describing at the time. But since then, it, it's remarkable how how broadly the idea has gained public acceptance here. Quickly describe this mobile overdose clinic for us. That really caught my attention from your podcast on drugs. What, 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 how does this work? Yeah, well, and that's the thing, and it shows you the limitations even of the of the approach up to this point. Insight, just so you understand, for Insight, the, the supervised injection site to even operate, it requires a special exemption from Health Canada, the, the Ministry of Health uh, at the federal level. So it's not – it wasn't easy to make it happen, and it's not easy to make new ones happen, although they are starting to pop up around the country. So – as this latest overdose epidemic started to peak and fentanyl started to appear on the streets, a, a group of activists, many of whom were involved in the initial push to get insight created, said, look, we need more than just that. We need other, maybe more impromptu, uh, temporary uh, setups. And so what you see now is, unlike insight, which is a, uh, is a fixed location uh, purpose built. You have uh, a couple of places in the downtown east side where there's literally a construction tape, uh, a construction trailer, and a couple of pop-up tents. And people, essentially, it's uh, people with addictions helping other people with addictions in a much less formal environment than you see at Insight. They're, they don't have nurses. It's basically a peer counseling situation, but it does seem to help. At least there's somebody there when, when somebody does overdose, there's somebody there to help them. And so. another um, way to make response more nimble, I understand, in Vancouver is that pharmacies are handing out free naloxone kits to like general citizens, non-drug users perhaps, um, so that you've got lots of people in the community who are deployed to reverse an opioid overdose. Yeah, um, it's pretty extraordinary. And it's funny you mention that because just the other day, we were uh, we were on our way to some, my family and I were in the car on our way to some Christmas gathering or another, and we noticed a group of teenage girls crossing the street, just the, the most ordinary looking high school kids you could imagine. And two of them had naloxone kits dangling from their backpacks. Oh. And uh, puts in mind a story from Victoria just on the other side of, uh, of the water from us here where a 16-year-old girl saved a, a person from overdose because she had a Narcan kit with her. So there's, <laughs> I think that speaks to the extraordinary degree to which harm reduction and uh, the idea of taking on addiction as a public health concern as opposed to a criminal or a moral uh, issue has has really taken hold here. And, and finally, Jeff Turner of CBC Radio in Vancouver, host of the podcast On Drugs. What about prescription heroin? Uh, help us understand uh, just briefly how that might change the equation. Yeah, that's really remarkable. I guess that's the natural uh, next step, depending on where you how you see these things. But there's a clinic called the Crosstown Clinic, which is just two blocks from Insight, the supervised injection site. And at Crosstown, they actually prescribe and 
administer uh, a form of prescription heroin. Uh, they also offer hydromorphone, which is a another opioid option. And the idea is to not only have people injecting in a safer situation, but to have them injecting drugs which are known to be clinically safe um, and to help people break out of the cycle. Because for so many people on drugs, whether they're uh, using the drugs in safer circumstances, they're still engaged in all sorts of criminal activity and what have you just to attain the drugs every day. So it's a very interesting experiment to see what happens. There's only, I think, about 90 people involved in the program right now, although they're looking to expand it. But to see what happens when people who are normally desperately putting all their energy into finding and maintaining the drugs to support the habit, when you break that cycle and just provide it for them. We have about a minute left is this working? Do you have some evidence that this is turning the tide in Vancouver? That is the million-dollar question. And I think it, it's very hard to measure right now because I think as promising as the results have been in the first 15 or so years of the existence of Insight, for example, the problem of overdose and opioid addiction has grown enormously out all around Vancouver. Hmm. So it's very difficult to say. I think maybe with a bit of catch-up, we'll, we'll start to see. And as they pop up around the, uh, the country, we'll have a better sense. But even the mayor here, who was a big supporter of the harm reduction approach, last year he said, it just feels like we're treading water. So I think there are measurable ways that you can say it's been very effective. It's reduced deaths. It's reduced the spread of HIV. But it's not like it's a silver bullet. Jeff Turner with the CBC in Vancouver, host of the podcast On Drugs. Officials from Denver plan to visit Vancouver soon and tour its supervised injection site. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Everyone was braced for it, but it didn't happen. Broncos head coach Vance Joseph was not fired Monday after the team's 5-11 and season. Instead, a slew of assistant coaches, six of them altogether, were shown the door. The first move in what could be one of the most important off-seasons in team history. Troy Rank covers the team for 7 News and joins us from Broncos headquarters. Hi, Troy. Hi, how's it going? Uh, doing well. I'll say that the team's executive vice president, John Elway, is about to meet with the press, so I appreciate your taking the time. Um, it was reported that Joseph kept his job after having a good talk with Elway. What do you make of keeping him on but firing so many assistants? Well, they're not happy with the offensive production. They haven't been, frankly, for the last three years. Some of those guys that were let go, even though they're good coaches, Eric Studisville, Tyke Tolbert, they were inherited by Joseph. Only three of the six coaches he fired were guys he brought on. But that was part of him being able to stay is kind of acquiescing to change within the staff. Uh, they didn't keep Joseph for continuity purposes. They didn't keep him to save salary. They didn't keep him because players wanted him. They kept him because they felt like he would get better in year two and learn from his experience. And also, you had to have a better candidate out there. I mean, mm. it's arguable this isn't a great year if you're looking for a coach. 
to say, oh, there's an obvious guy they wanted. So he keeps his job, but clearly 5-11 and 11 is not what they expected. And if it's anywhere near that again, at this point, a year from now, he won't survive that. I think what I'm hearing you say is that part of this is just the job market out there and, and the other options or the lack thereof. Yeah, and that's part of it. And, you know, Elway has a good relationship with Vance Joseph. He brought him on. They've liked him since they interviewed him as a coach with the Bengals a couple years ago when they hired Kubiak. Um, and they want it to work. They see a lot of stuff that behind the scenes that he does well that have just frankly not played out during game day. And that would be the biggest criticism of Joseph is players like him, the people in the building like him, but there's just on game day, it's not translating. The game's getting fast for him. And again, that has to improve partly. You'd hope with a better staff, uh, you'll see improvement in that area. But 5-11 and 11 won't stand, uh, even though I think they are in transition. They don't talk in those terms in Dem- in, with the Broncos. They talk playoffs. What do you think Vance Joseph did to sing for his supper? Uh, to save his job? You yeah, know? yeah. Yeah, I mean, I don't think he wasn't going in there saying, here's why I should be the coach. He, it's the same reasons they got him hired, his personality, his ability to work with Elway, uh, his ability to relate to the players. I mean, all those things are still strengths of his. Where he had, what he would have stressed to them is that he's going to learn how to be more assertive, not show his coaches so much respect. Uh, veteran coaches that he allowed to have freedom, it bit him. He needed to be more assertive to say, hey, this isn't working. My name's on the masthead. This is how it's going to be. And it took him way too long. You know, in the following of Mike McCoy and, and how they handled special teams, that took way too long. He's got to be more assertive and how things are. And that would be the key of, in terms of his improvement, being more assertive, being more active on game day. Uh, for the first time in his tenure as the executive face of the Broncos, John Elway got some pointed criticism. Here is former Denver tight end Hall of Famer Shannon Sharp, who played alongside Elway. So a lot of this falls at John Elway because he puts the team together. Trevor Simeon, he is what he is. He's a seventh-round draft pick. And if you build your team thinking you're going to get seventh-round drafted quarterback that's going to take you where you need to go, mm-hmm. you're fooling yourself. So we're talking a lot about Vance Joseph, but to what extent is this about John Elway's responsibility? Well, it just hasn't been a couple of good years drafting for John Elway. I mean, players they thought were going to contribute and become starters and pro bowlers, it hasn't manifested that way. They're one of three teams since 2012 to not draft a pro bowler. And part of it's because they're drafting late because of their good seasons. But the last couple of years, that wasn't the case. Mm. And that's become an issue is they don't have enough talent and that goes squarely to Elway uh, on his ability to draft players. So he's got to have a better off season as well. Look for Gary Kubiak to get an increased front office role to help John Elway going forward. I'll say that uh, Simeon did well last year, the quarterback. So credit, I suppose, due to Elway there, but to some extent Elway gets blamed for, taking Paxton Lynch perhaps in the first round a couple of years ago, because whether it's because of injury or performance, he hasn't really worked out. Oh yeah. That's, you know, that's a miss right now. And it doesn't look to be changing because here they are for another off season looking for a quarterback and a left tackle, but that falls squarely on Elway's shoulders, the Paxton Lynch pick. So, and those hurt because those are players that you expect to contribute and they, you know, in Lynch's case, he has not. 
Where would you go next? So Denver will have another high pick in the first round of the 2018 draft. I don't know. Would you take a, a young, talented quarterback like Josh Allen of Wyoming or, say, try to sign a veteran like Washington's Kirk Cousins? Yeah, I mean, if you want to rebound more quickly, you go with the veteran. Like a Cousins, if Drew Brees were to become available, if one of the guys from Minnesota you like, Case Keenum, Sam Bradford, Teddy Bridgewater, if one of those is a guy you like, you take a look. If you go in the draft and you're taking a guy at the top five, you have to believe he's a franchise quarterback. And if you don't believe that, then you take Saquon Barkley, the running back, or you take Fitzpatrick, the best defensive player from Alabama. That's the key. You can't take a quarterback at five if you don't believe that he's going to be your guy, if not next year, for two years later for the next 10 years. And they need that stability at the position. If you talk to the players, that's the one criticism of the season is just the uncertainty of quarterback. They had six quarterback changes in 16 games, and it's part of the reason they were one of the worst offenses in the league. The Broncos have the fifth overall pick. Uh, you're about to hear from Elway. What are, you, what, are you, what are you excited to hear from him? What questions do you have for him? Well, just that. What are you know? They started this past season saying it wasn't um, a rebuild; it was a reboot. I think they misjudged on that. That you know they were probably an eight and eight type team on paper. But what do you, what does he see this year? Is it a rebound where they're all in on free agency and they're looking to find a way to get back to the playoffs, or is there a step back? Let's identify who our core players are are and kind of take a longer view on this that would surprise me but in some ways that's what this roster kind of demands right now unless they just strike gold in the offseason in the draft and in free agency you know we are hitting a fairly bleak note so are many fans many observers uh but the broncos won the super bowl less than two years ago is there any way that this past season could be viewed as really an aberration and that the broncos are still part of the nfl elite yeah, no. <laughs> that is no. They've backslid. I mean, they've lost such a huge leadership void with Peyton Manning and DeMarcus Ware, and you lose Gary Kubiak, and you just lost a number of your best players. And again, we talk about the young players that were supposed to step up that just didn't. Not only did they not fill the void, they didn't, you know, they're not even starters. So can they get back to it quickly? Yes. In the NFL, with one good draft, as the Saints prove this year. Saints had the best draft in the NFL. Suddenly they go from a team that was consistently 5-11 and to now they're back with a chance at the Super Bowl. So you can turn it around pretty quickly. You've got to draft well, and you can't miss in your high picks first three rounds. Hey, thanks for being with us, Troy. You got it. Take care. Troy Rank is the Broncos insider at 7 News in Denver. He joined us to discuss the Denver Broncos' disappointing 2017 season and what has already started out as a tumultuous offseason for the team. Now for Loud and Clear, when we get your feedback. Many of you got in touch after hearing Herb Myers of Aurora on the show. He told us about his wife, Kathy Myers, who chose to end her own life after struggling for years with a lung disease called COPD. She was among the first to take advantage of Colorado's aid in dying law, which went into effect a year ago. This is Herb. My father died of Alzheimer's, and my brother died of complications from AIDS. So I've seen a couple really nasty deaths, and uh, Kathy's gave me a lot of comfort in the fact that she didn't have to go through those things. Kate Magassis of Pueblo writes, I would like to thank you for covering that issue so personally. 
well-done coverage of an important yet controversial issue. And this from Twitter user at Love Drugs and Law. Thank you for the story on the end-of-life law in Colorado. It was heartbreaking yet hopeful, and the man you interviewed was brave for being a voice of experience. In recent days, we've asked how the political divide in this country affects the workplace, and we have featured co-workers of different races and political beliefs who've managed to find common ground. This is part of our series Breaking Bread, and we asked for your experiences in the office. Well, Jeffrey Winters of Grand Junction writes at CPR.org, As most Coloradans know, this area, referring to the Grand Valley, is heavily conservative and Republican. When co-workers discover that my political leanings tend to be to the left, their shock and amazement is always obvious. It's as if I just disclosed I'm an alien life form visiting from another world. Pamela M. Blome chimed in. She works at the Colorado School of Mines and says many of our students, future engineers and scientists, are actually more conservative than the faculty and staff. This means that I tend to keep my views to myself as young people need to learn to evaluate situations and come to their own conclusions. Hopefully, our education is teaching them to discern facts and evaluate what they hear in the media. Finally, We've been covering the Trump administration's decision last month to shrink Bears Ears National Monument in neighboring Utah. Our coverage included Energy Fuels Incorporated, a uranium mining firm headquartered in Lakewood. It has a mine and mill near Bears Ears. I asked spokesman Curtis Moore about a letter the company wrote to the Interior Department before the president's proclamation. That letter said, quote, there are many uranium and vanadium deposits located within the monument, referring to its original boundaries, that could provide valuable energy and mineral resources in the future. Here's more. That letter was actually a comment letter. The uh, Department of Interior was soliciting uh, public comments. There were 2.8 million comments that were actually submitted to the Department of Interior. Ours was one. And so what we were doing was we were just trying to provide them with information. We actually don't own any uranium or vanadium deposits inside what is or what was formerly Bears Ears. We sought a couple of very marginal adjustments to the boundary of Bears Ears, amounting to about 1% or 2%. I'll tell you, we, we never asked for an 85% reduction in Bears Ears. No, we want to add some context to that answer. As you heard there, Moore said Energy Fuels doesn't have any mineral rights in the old Bears Ears. They actually used to, but he says they were sold in 2015 and 2016 to a smaller company called Encore Energy, which Energy Fuels holds a small percentage of. And an Energy Fuels executive also sits on Encore's board. Still, Moore stands by his assertion that his company has no interests within Bears Ears. And company president Mark Chalmers adds that he'd expect to support a federal mineral withdrawal on the land, quote, because our company has no intention to mine or explore for uranium anywhere within the current or originally designated monument. Remember, our show is a two-way street, so keep your feedback and story ideas coming. Find all the ways to get in touch at CPR.org slash connect. This is Colorado Matters. There 
There are some formidable female sleuths in fiction. Miss Marple, Kinsey Milhone, heck, even Jessica Fletcher. It's no small task to create a character that can live up to the likes of those three. Enter Celine Watkins. She's a very elegant private investigator. According to Denver author Peter Heller, his suspense novel, Celine, is out in paperback today. And welcome back to the program. It's great to be here. Celine is based on someone you know. But before I have you reveal who, describe this character for us, because she she's larger than life. In fact, I think of her as like the most interesting woman in the world. <laughs> well, she's very elegant. She was born in Paris just before the war. And um, the Germans were coming. So she and her two sisters and her mother fled a couple of months before they marched on Paris. And she arrived in Manhattan, and all she wanted to do at age seven was be in the French resistance. She would go around Manhattan listening to groups of people trying to decide who was a Nazi spy. And she grew up, she went to college, she got out, got married early, had kids. So that kind of squelched her ambition maybe to be in the CIA or to be James Bond, which is what she really wanted to do. But she began working for a detective agency as a homemaker And then got her PI license, and almost immediately after getting her license, the FBI contacted her. She was that good. She was that good. Private investigator. And the reason the backstory of this character is so thorough is because she's based on someone in your life. Who who is it? Right. So Celine is my mom, and my mom died two and a half years ago. I was devastated. I was very close to her, and. I think I wrote the novel just so I could hang out with her for another year. Your mother, and thus the character of Celine in your new novel, Peter Heller, has this amazing knack to just confront bad guys and disarm them with her words. And Celine in this book is in her late 60s into her early 70s. And so I suppose there's, there's something about her that might be disarming. She was, uh, both Celine in the book and my mother, um, always met people right where they were. What she and her husband ended up focusing on was finding missing people and reuniting birth families. Like if you were a 15-year-old girl, you had a baby, it was taken by the state. 20 years later, either the mother or the child wanted to find each other. That's what they did. It was cold cases, often with sealed records, and they were crack investigators. They had like a 96% find rate, and they reunited over 100 birth families, and they did it pro bono for people that couldn't afford an investigator. And so mom could, and Celine, could talk to homeless people, to addicts, never patronized, always you know, met people right where they were, and it was disarming. I mean, they had county clerks with sealed records that would meet my mother instantly in the bathroom and hand files under, you know, between stalls, you know, just because she was persuasive. Them. Right. Yeah, yeah. I think it's fascinating how blended Celine is and your mother is, the character and and your mom. And it makes me wonder if, if this is really a novel or if it's right. more of a biography of a very yeah. interesting woman who happened to raise you. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, I could have written a memoir, but me- novels way more fun. I mean, I could conflate stories, you know, things that happened to her sisters, you know, I made happen to her in the novel. <clears throat> I can embellish. But there was so much about my mother that you didn't need to embellish. She was a wonderful artist and she used a lot of skulls and bones and... Her art was displayed throughout her loft on the right on the dock by the Brooklyn Bridge is where she lived. And the window washer became so fascinated with her art that, one, that he came back two days later with a skull in a bucket. 
It <laughs> said, uh, Mrs. Hellett, don't ask. I put that in the book. You know, it's like, so she quickly covered it in gold leaf and it stands on a pedestal looking elegant by the door. And she could shoot. My, my mother was a crack shot. Uh, she would disappear for weeks at a time. So I don't really know exactly what all she did, but things would reveal themselves. We were driving in Idaho. We had said goodbye to her sister who was dying of cancer. We were both very sad. We weren't talking much. We were driving through Haley, Idaho. And mom said, hey, Pete, pull over, will you? And it, it, was a, it was a building that said Dick's Guns. This guy's cleaning a handgun on the back counter. He's in coveralls and he's kind of watching her. She leans over the counter, starts looking at these handguns. Her bracelet's like clicking on the glass. And she said, can I, can I see that one? It was like this honking big Colt 45. And he said, a gift, right? And he said, no, uh, it's for me. <laughs> and he said, well, you might want to start with something a little smaller, like these 22s over there. And she said, no, I'd like to try this. So she picked it up. She made a stance. I could see the guy's thoughts. He was like, hmm, she must watch a lot of cop shows. <laughs> Pretty good. And then he was so intrigued. He was like, let's go shoot this thing. I'm about to close. We get in his Bronco, go up to this gully above Haley, Idaho. He sets up a log with a bunch of cans of bottles, like seven of them. He's very patronizing, showing her how to rack the gun. She's very patient. I was just watching all this. And she just picked up the gun and went, bam, 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 bam. And every bottle and can just, you know, shattered, you know, flew in the air. She was a good shot. She was, yeah. And again, this is the basis for Celine in your new novel. And uh, at the heart of this is a disappearance. Right. So someone comes knocking on her door, uh, desperate to find her father, who may either be dead or just missing. Right. And and this brings her out west where this man has disappeared. Uh, tell us a little bit more about what brings Celine West. Right. So this this young woman's father disappeared over 20 years before. He was a na- famous National Geographic photographer. He was doing a story on grizzly bears in Yellowstone, and he disappears. And all evidence points to a bear mauling. But to this young woman, things don't add up. And so she finds out about Celine, contacts her, and asks if she would help find her father. So Celine heads west with her Watson, Pete, who's a seventh-generation Maine Islander where, you know, reticence is like the state bird. He doesn't say much. They call him the quiet American in the family. And uh, they're, they're sort of like good cop, bad cop. They're kind of like the cop that talks and the one that doesn't. <laughs> they borrow uh, Celine's son's camper and they head up to Yellowstone. And, uh, you know, it's a page turner from there on. <laughs> in, in the background of this story is 9-11. Right. And, and the attacks... Of that period. Why is that in the backdrop? Well, I think Celine is dealing. I mean, the book ends up being, I mean, it's a really fun mystery, sure, you know, but it ends up really being about broken families, about daughters looking for their fathers, about mothers looking for their children. It's about loss. And so I think setting it, you know, right after 9 11 was a way to set the story in a context of a greater loss of a country uh, dealing with its grief uh, the way she is. You said that this was, in some ways, how you could spend time with her right. um, after her death. You also said that this book is about grief. Was it a healing process to write the book? Did it help you with your grief? It was so wonderful. Yeah. I mean, I mean, it really, you know, when I write, I get completely transported. And, you know, I'll be sitting in the coffee shop and I'll start, I'll laugh out loud. And people probably think I'm crazy or I'll have, you know, tears like dripping off my chin under the under the table. And I, I know people in the coffee shop are thinking... That poor son of a gun, you know, he's probably going through a bad divorce or whatever. But I, I get completely 
uh, transported and completely enthralled in the work. And so I really felt like I was with her for, for the better part of a year, which was so wonderful. And one thing I discovered was that the animus that drove her life and her sort of MO was that she was just having a ton of fun. That's what I realized when I was writing the book. She was doing really hard work. She was doing important work for people. But she also had just such a great time. I mean, she could put on disguises once she went to a diplomat's party disguised as a man. Uh, you know, I mean, she had a lot of investigative skills. Thanks so much for being with us. It's so great. Thank you, Ryan. Denver writer Peter Heller's suspense novel, Celine, is out in paperback today. And that's our show with a warm welcome to Exandra McMahon, who joins the Colorado Matters team. Special thanks as well to Nell London. I'm Ryan Warner, CPR News.